book of 1 Peter, where we're coming to a section this morning in chapter 4 that is very vital for us to understand in relationship to how we're supposed to interpret the trials that so often come into our lives. I've titled this message, if you're taking notes, Strange Suffering. Strange Suffering, because those two words really capture what it is that Peter has for a theme for us this morning, and I think you're going to understand that even more once we read these words together. So look at the text starting in verse 12 to 19, and listen as I read, chapter 4, starting in verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial among you which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you are sharing the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be put to shame, but is to glorify God in this name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God must entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing good. You know, it's said of all the epistles in the New Testament that 1 Peter is probably the best known, most loved, most read letter of them all. 1 Peter has been called by some one of the most beautiful writings in all of the New Testament. Affectionate, loving, lowly, humble are just a few of the adjectives that people use to describe this wonderful letter. Von Stoden, the theologian, said that this short, impressive letter is one of the most precious monuments of primitive Christianity, a jewel of the New Testament worthy to be inscribed with the name of the great apostle. It has been designated as the epistle of living hope. E.J. Goodspeed wrote, First Peter is one of the most moving pieces of persecution literature. William Barclay adds, It is written out of the love of a pastor's heart to help people who were going through it and on whom worse things were still to come. Certainly, I think that is evident with what it is that I just read to you this morning. Peter here in chapter 4 is trying to prepare the flock of God in what they're going to see as strange suffering that is certain to come upon them. Peter had been appointed by this task from the very beginning of his ministry. He had been commissioned to prepare the sheep of God for the burning, as we shall see, which is to come. And Peter was determined in his heart not to fail this mission that his master had granted him. If you remember the life of Peter in the very end of Jesus' life on earth, after the Lord had risen victoriously from the grave as we celebrated last Lord's Day, he decided to do what he knew every believing man on the face of the earth would enjoy. He decided to have a men's breakfast. <laughs> you could probably call it an apostle's breakfast more fittingly because he prepared it only for the 11 remaining disciples. But according to the Gospel of John, Jesus was standing on the beach while the disciples were fishing in the Sea of Tiberias, and he called them saying, come and have breakfast. And what a breakfast that must have been. 
Jesus, the chef, in his breakfast menu consisting of fish and bread, cooking over a charcoal fire on the beach early in the morning. Uh, this is why, by the way, we have men's breakfasts and not men's dinners, uh, if you're kind of wondering. Because Jesus wanted his men to be fed first thing in the morning, and what he offered them was just more than food for their stomachs. He offered them food for their souls. Now, we weren't told of all the conversations in that passage about Jesus and who he had conversations with and the men in that particular morning, but we are told of one conversation, as you know, and the one conversation is with Peter. It was a famous conversation, a conversation that was more than just friendly chit-chat. It was a commissioning of an apostle for the most important ministry of his life, namely the care of the church. You remember the dialogue, I'm sure. It went something like this. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, shepherd my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. The Lord who knew all things knew that Peter needed to prepare himself to take care of the sheep of God because they would be called upon to suffer, just as Peter would be called upon to suffer as well. So Peter writes to the first century churches spread all over Asia Minor that suffering is on its way, and it's a very important thing for them to grasp. It's a very important message for us to grasp as well. There will be a time for many of us where we find ourselves one day struck Speechless, if you were, because of the shock we encountered to have to suffer for Christ. It will take our breath away. It will be something that will stun us like a bolt of lightning from heaven. It will surprise us to our very core because as prepared as we believe we are to be able to suffer, we've never truly encountered the intensity of suffering for Christ. And because our suffering wasn't predicted in an early morning conversation by the sea on a one-on-one conversation with our Lord, we believe that our suffering is strange. We believe our suffering will seem counterintuitive. We believe that it will be surreal and otherworldly. For some reason, the human spirit believes deep down inside that once it's considered itself to give itself over to the Lordship of Christ, then it's impervious to injury. Because we've denied ourselves, we've taken up our cross daily, we follow Jesus, we instinctively believe that our souls are safe in his arms and our lives will be free from harm. Because we've trusted our salvation to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we assume on some level that his immense power and immeasurable love will shelter us from the suffering that's to come. We believe that because Jesus suffered, we won't have to. But the sad truth is we're wrong. We're dead wrong. Because Jesus suffered, we are guaranteed to suffer. Because Jesus suffered, if we belong to him, we will be subject to the same suffering he endured. I think one of the most fascinating aspects of American Christianity is how the concept of suffering for Christ has basically vanished from the scene of evangelicalism. I think it because it lacks the hype and hook of usually what's connected to most Churches advertising campaigns, this idea of suffering has been kind of systematically removed from all church billboards. 
Instead of preaching the full counsel of God, you find more often than not, pastors today are like circus ringleaders, uh, willing to announce to the crowds all of the benefits of coming to Christ. Come one, come all to the show of a lifetime is kind of like how Christian pastors seem to present the Christian life. You can have all the riches of eternal life without the struggles of the temporal life. So like a kind of a poor boy with only a penny left in his name, masses of people come to the church like carnival tents, giving away their clowns with painted smiles and try to convince everyone that life is just a merry-go-round going on and on. And yet once the Bible is read, as we've heard even this morning, and theology is explained, it becomes really clear that Scripture paints an entirely different story. Once you're in Christ, you are completely susceptible to the same treatment that he endured. Once you are a Christian, you become vulnerable to the same heartbreaks that he felt. Yes, he denied and died for your sin, excuse me, but now you must live for his life. He died for you, now you live for him. And there probably isn't a better equipped section of Scripture to help us than this passage this morning from the Apostle Peter. Peter would never hold back the truth from Christ's sheep. Peter would never lighten up the message because it was just too heavy for them to bear. God had uniquely prepared the Apostle Peter to be the human instrument that would allow him to forever remember and be remembered as the Apostle of Persecution. So I want to examine this portion of Scripture with you this morning through the eyes of Peter. I want you to think about this through the eyes of Peter. I want you to hear these words given to us 2,000 years later from the time he first said them and they were written down through his life experiences and through the author who penned them so you might understand the intense pathos and incredible empathy that must have flooded Peter's heart when he wrote these words. And so to do that, we're going to look at this section in four lessons. We're going to take four lessons from the apostle's heart that when suffering comes, we might understand what's happening to us. These are four lessons or four pieces, if you want to write it that way, of pastoral counsel that helps us deal with the trials that are for sure to come. And the first lesson, again, if you're taking notes, from Peter to the church, so that we understand what is happening to us, is number one, expect the suffering. Number one, expect the suffering. And you're going to see that in verse 12 of chapter 4. Beloved, beloved, stop right there just for a moment. Beloved, I know it seems like it's going to go slow already. <laughs> I want you to notice though something. It's very, very important here, and I think it will help you better understand this entire section. Verse 12 begins with that word beloved, which is a very, very important word. It's a very telling word because this one word kind of sets the trajectory of everything else that's going to happen in the message that we're about to receive this morning. As soon as you hear that word beloved, you understand that the entire tone of this piece has changed. As soon as you read this tender word beloved, you understand that whatever might follow after this word has first been bathed in the lather of deep concern and affection for those to whom it was written. This one word is the reason that we're going to look at this whole section through the eyes of Peter, because this one word has within it this profound sense of, of, of empathy associated with its author. The word beloved comes from a word in the Greek that speaks of a dear one, a very much loved one. Agapetos is a love called out from one's heart by the preciousness of the object loved. 
God the Father uses this exact same word describing Jesus when he declares that this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, Matthew 3. In fact, the first nine times that this, used, this word is used in the New Testament, all of it is God the Father speaking of Christ the Son as his beloved son. This gives you some kind of idea of the preciousness of a word like this. Beloved is a term of endearment. Beloved is a term that speaks of someone you love and someone you're deeply devoted to. In the context of the New Testament, agape love speaks of a love that seeks the ultimate welfare of the one loved. And so agapetos could be translated divinely loved ones. Those are the precious souls that God himself loves. But there's more here than even the love of God. I tell you this because this one word is going to set the stage for us. This is key for all we're about to consider because what we have here is what I consider a treatise from the Apostle Peter to us on how a pastor cares for his flock. This is a guide on pastoral care from a suffering soul. The word beloved for a pastor elder is a word that's born out of a pastor's personal crucible. A beloved is a word of empathy. It's a word of, of identification. I identify with you as the beloved. It's a word that's uttered by one who has gone before the people in the struggle. I know the struggle I'm about to describe to you. It's not theological sympathy, but it's practical empathy. It's a love that comes not from reading about suffering, but from living out suffering. So Peter opens this section by saying, Beloved, because Peter himself actually walked in the walk he's now trying to communicate to his flock. Because the, Peter, the apostle Peter suffered, he understands now to minister to those who are going to suffer as well. And the whole letter could be ended after that. It said amen in verse 11 of, of chapter 4. After he said, that all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and might forever and ever. Amen. You could say the letter would have ended, but it didn't. In fact, many theologians believe that 1 Peter is a letter that contains two letters within it. The first letter is from chapter 1, verse 4, to chapter 4, verse 11, and it's called the baptismal sermon because some believe Peter is addressing baptismal matters in the letter. Remember, not all baptism is wet. Sometimes it's dry, as we learned before. And that explains, I think, the emphasis in chapter 3, verse 21, why the issue of baptism kind of uh, appears out of nowhere. So when Peter, if you're following me, ends chapter 4, verse 11 with a doxology through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever, ever, amen, it seems as if he's marking the end of the first sermon. Then the second letter of the, or the second sermon, if you will, begins with verse 12 of chapter 4 until the end of the book, and we're introduced to what some theologians call the pastoral letter in 1 Peter where the sole reason for him writing is connected with preparing the flock for the storm that is to come. And because of that fact, Peter understood through the inspiration that suffering is to come. Suffering is on its way. He cannot finish the letter as it is because he's responsible before the sheep to add to the letter a treatise of pastoral care. He is to tend for the sheep. He is to tend for the sheep for Christ. He is to love them on behalf of Christ. He is to care for them in the name of Christ. And he knew that very well. So he addresses them as beloved and then delivers to them this first lesson. Number one, expect the suffering to come. Expect the suffering to come. Verse 12. 
Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial among you which comes upon you for your testing as though it were some strange thing were happening to you. From the very beginning here, Peter's pastoral heart leaks through to make sure that the church isn't surprised at the fiery ordeal or literally it says the burning that is to come. That is among them as if some strange thing were happening to them because he says it comes upon you this burning for your testing. And since Peter says this fiery ordeal is among you, it's among you, it seems as if there was an early on first century church that had a series of persecutions that had already been descended upon them. Some people believe, in fact, that Peter was at this time speaking of those ordeals as burnings, referring to the persecution that came as a result of the wicked uh, Roman Emperor Nero, as he attempted to blame Christians for the burning of Rome in AD 64, which is possible depending on how you date the letter. Years following the burning of Rome, we did see a surging forward of Christian persecution like none had ever happened before in that time. We know by AD 80 that Roman governor named Plenty the Younger wrote to the Emperor Trajan in a letter specifically asking about how he could handle the Christians he encountered where he speaks of killing them. He speaks just shortly, in the case of those who were denounced to me as Christians, I have observed the following procedure. I interrogated these as to whether they were Christians. Those who confessed, I interrogated a second time and a third time, threatening them with punishment. Those who persisted, I ordered executed. Yet even then, it seems that Christian persecution at the time of the writing wasn't widespread or a mandate in Rome, but rather it was a situational kind of persecution that was applied from city to city. Regardless, most likely, Peter wrote this letter either right before or right after the burning of Rome in A.D. 64. And therefore, he doesn't seem to be speaking in this letter about martyrdom yet, but it is to come. Though the murder of Christians would eventually arrive, here it seems that the burning among them was chiefly just slander, uh, which we're going to see in our generation, of course. Verbal attacks, marginalization, uh, alienation. And Christians will encounter burning ordeals, burning trials, because God is going to use these to put us to the test to prove our faith, as we actually heard this morning with assurance So Christians are going to encounter burning ordeals, and he has already alluded to this crucible before in the first chapter. If you turn back just a couple of pages to 1 Peter 6, chapter 1, verse 6, he says, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that, verse 7, the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found in result with praise and glory and honor the revelation of Jesus Christ. So this is the burning fire that Peter is speaking of, God's crucible. And therefore, back to chapter 4, verse 12, he says, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. A word that speaks of experience of that sudden feeling of wonder and disorientation and unexpectedness, surprise or astonishment as the result of some kind of strange novelty or something like the point. Don't be shocked at your sufferings. Don't sit there and have your air taken away because you didn't see it coming. Peter is issuing a command here. It's a present imperative. Don't be. uh, Do not be surprised, which he combines with a negative, not 
implies that they were in fact being surprised or shocked by the fiery trials. They were being surprised, don't be surprised. You think it's harsh, don't be surprised at the harshness. And the idea of this command then is to stop thinking it an alien thing. Stop being shocked. When believers are surprised in chapter 4, verse 4, that you no longer indulge yourself in worldly pleasures, so now you're not to be surprised that they slander you. The natural attitude is to look at persecution or testing or any kind of affliction as something strange, right? It's something abnormal. We believe in our Christian life that everything should go hunky-dory. It's a rose-colored garden for us. We think things like, I had a great quiet time all week. I've been, I've been avoiding sin. I've been praying without ceasing. So I don't deserve this trial. Why is this happening to me? My walk is really good right now. We're surprised when we have to suffer because we feel like the one who has suffered for us has already done all the suffering so we don't have to suffer anymore. We all tend to think that our suffering is strange and it's unlike anything that's ever been suffered before. And Peter says, oh, to the contrary, expect it. Expect it. When Paul was chosen as an apostle, the word warned him so that he would not be surprised. He said, Christ told Ananias concerning Paul, I will show him how much he must suffer for my namesake, Acts chapter 9, verse 16. Paul then in turn forewarned his young disciple, Timothy, indeed, 2 Timothy 3, 12, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be, not may be or might be, will be guaranteed persecuted. These Christians were thinking that the suffering which they were enduring is a thing that's like foreign or alien to their Christian lives, as if Christianity was immune to suffering. But Peter exhorts them here to think rightly about suffering. Get your thoughts right and expect it. I think no one understood this better than Peter. No one understood better what suffering was. Peter himself expected suffering to come into his life and the entirety of his earthly ministry. Why? Because in John 21, we were told that he had an expectation given to him. An expectation wasn't some kind of general warning given to him, as we see here, but it was very personal, very specific to him. You don't have to turn there, but if you remember John 21, right after the breakfast of the Lord Jesus Christ on the beach and Peter's commissioning that I just rehearsed for you earlier this morning, John 21, 18, Christ says, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wish, but when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will bring you where you do not wish to go. And just in case the reader was unsure what Jesus meant, John the Apostle adds these words, Now this he said, signifying by what kind of death, meaning Peter, he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. So Peter knew from the very beginning that suffering was to come. He heard it from the lips of the Lord himself. And so out of a heart of pastoral experience, he says to the flock, beloved, expect it. Charles Spurgeon writes, Dogs do not usually bark at those who live in the same village with them. It is only at strangers that they bark. And when vulgar tongues are lifted up against you, you have reason to hope that you are a stranger and a foreigner to the citizens of this world, for they love their own, as our Savior reminded his disciples. If ye were of this world, the world would love its own, but because ye are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth 
you. One writer wrote it this way, God has never promised that we would miss the storm, but he has promised that we would make the harbor. When God puts his own people into the furnace, he keeps his eye on the clock and his hand on the thermostat. He knows how long and how much, end quote. So Peter's first lesson is expected. Expect the suffering. Next, number two, Peter gives us a second lesson from his pastoral heart. And he says, namely, not only should we expect the suffering, but number two, we should exult in suffering. Not only expect the suffering, but exult in suffering. I know that sounds pretty odd, but it's not odd once you look at what Peter is saying here in verse 13 and 14. Let me read it to you. But to the degree that you're sharing sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Exultation at the very end of of verse 13 is where we get this idea of exulting in your suffering. But this exultation comes with some qualifiers, and I want you to notice them with me. There's two key phrases here that need our attention. One is in verse 13, where it says, to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ. And then in verse 14, if you are reviled for the name of Christ. So to the degree that you share the sufferings, and if you're reviled in the name of Christ. So both of these conditions are necessary to rejoice or exult in and consider yourself blessed by sufferings. And both are necessary for glory to be placed, for glory to be placed on you. So if any of these two realities identify the reasons you're suffering, then you should keep on rejoicing because you're suffering for the right reason, according to the apostle. He says, keep on rejoicing. Keep on rejoicing. That's in the present imperative, which is a command imperative mood, calling for the saints to continually, present tense, make a choice, active voice to rejoice. In other words, you already rejoice, Peter says, because chapter 1, verse 4, and verse 5 says you have an internal inheritance protected by God through faith. So, because that's true, chapter 1, don't let your suffering on earth on behalf of Christ dampen your joy at all. Keep on rejoicing both before and after you suffer. This is Peter's full experience in his own life. You remember in the book of Acts, and if you haven't read through Acts, let me just remind you, chapter 5, we're told that Peter and John are brought before the council of the high priest, questioning them and told them that they were to stop proclaiming the word of Christ. And Peter answers them with the incredible boldness, uh, we must obey God rather than men. And Luke tells us that his infuriated them, and they were cut to the quick, and so they decided to flog them. And just so you know, flogging was a punishment that the Romans would normally reserve for non-citizens dating back as far as 195 and 123 B.C. The poet Horace refers to what he calls the horrible whippings in his satires. These are horrible whippings. Typically, the one is to be punished is stripped naked and bound to a low pillar so that he could bend over it and chained to an upright pillar so he stretched out. And then two torturers would alternate blows from the bare shoulders down the body to the soles of the feet. There was no limit to the blows inflicted, though they were normally not supposed to kill the victim. And listen to this, Acts 5.40 says of Peter and John, they flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and then released them. And then 
verse 41, and they, the apostles, departed from the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer the shame for his name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. So this is what Peter is talking about here in our letter. He, share, he says, share the sufferings of Christ being reviled for the name of Christ. And when you suffer, he says, having personally experienced it himself, keep rejoicing. Do as I did. Jesus, as you know, said it this way, Matthew 5, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So how can you do that? Practically speaking, how can anyone find joy in suffering? To be able to exalt or rejoice in sufferings means that first, you have separated yourself from the ambitions of this world. You have first separated yourself from all the desires and all the dreams that once maybe consumed you, and now you find only your comfort in identification with Christ. You rejoice because you recognize what is happening to you. You exult in the suffering because it's an indication that you are from God and you belong to God in God's household. It's God's brand upon you. He sears you. It's God's imprint on your soul to tell you that heaven's doors are open and we're expecting your arrival. You're like him. You're being reviled and treated like him. You will be with him where he is. James says it this way in James 1, 2, Count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials and temptations. So how can you encounter various trials and temptations with joy? Where does that joy come from? Paul gives us the answer in his first letter to the Thessalonians, writing, You, Thessalonians, also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation, meaning to be crushed and pressed and squeezed, with the joy of the Holy Spirit, 1 Thessalonians 1.6. With the joy, being pressed and squeezed with the joy of the Spirit. So joy is a divinely settled result of standing in Christ and a fruit of the Spirit. In fact, verse 13 says, Keep on rejoicing that you may at the revelation of his glory, meaning the second coming, that you might add to the revelation of his glory, literally jump much, exaltation, leap much for joy, skip and jump and happy excitement, and so to be exceedingly joyful, overjoyed, or exuberantly happy. This has always befuddled me when I've thought of this, to jump up and down, to be excited for the fact of, of suffering for Christ, and yet that's what the word says, and that's what it means. It means a person that is so excessively happy that they have suffered for Christ that they are literally leaping and skipping about. It describes a jubilant exaltation, a quality of joy that remains unhindered and unchanged. You know why? Because it's an indication. As Paul, as Apostle, as Apostle, as Pastor John was saying, I didn't mean his apostle this morning about assurance. In fact, this context of joy comes from being so much like Christ that the sufferings we rejoice are a result of understanding that we belong to Him. Assurance, and therefore, whenever Christ is we want to be. And so if you were beat, if you were suffering, and that suffering proved to you that you were his and you were be with him in paradise, you too would jump and jump up and down with joy inexpressible. 
That's what Peter is saying when he speaks of the spirit of glory and God rest on you. God rest on you. There's a sense that God's glorious radiance even grows higher and brighter and fuller to those who suffer for the sun. You know, in book of Acts chapter 6, verse 15, Stephen is defending himself before his martyrdom. Remember, and we read that the council was gazing at his face because his face was like that of an angel. Do you remember that? His face was like glowing. God's glory rested on him. John Huss, the Bohemian, uh, Bohemian reformer, was burned at the stake 1415, and before his accusers lit the fire, they placed on his head a crown of paper with painted devils on it. And he answered this mockery by saying, My Lord Jesus Christ, for my sake, wore a crown of thorns. Why should I not then, for his sake, wear this light crown, being ever so ignanimous? And truly, I will do it willingly, being ever so in ignorance. After the wood was stacked up to Hus' neck, the Duke of Bavaria asked him to renounce his preaching, trusting completely in God's word. Hus said, In the truth of the gospel which I preached, I die willingly and joyfully today. The wood was ignited, and Huss died while singing, Jesus Christ, the Son of living God, have mercy on me. So we are to expect suffering. We're to exult in suffering. And number three, the third lesson this morning that Peter writes us, he says, evaluate your suffering. Don't only expect the suffering to come and exult in the suffering to come, but evaluate your suffering to come. And he says that in verses 15 and 16 of, verse four, of chapter 4. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or evildoer or as a troublesome meddler, but if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be put to shame, but to glorify God in this name. You know, when it comes to the issue of suffering for Christians, many times I think we confuse the pain that comes from the consequences of our sin, and we've talked about this before, for the pain that comes from suffering from not sinning. When we sin and we suffer, we should expect it, but when we suffer for not sinning on behalf of God, that is the kind of suffering that Peter's talking about. I think it's very important to define that kind of suffering. In a desperate attempt to legitimize their circumstances in life, a lot of times believers romanticize their loneliness. They romanticize just the normal sadness that is associated with sin that's seen on this. And they see that as the same level of suffering. Oh, Lord, I'm just really, I feel alone and I'm, I'm struggling and oh, I must be suffering for Christ. But that's not suffering for Christ necessarily. You might be alone and suffering in that way because of your own sinfulness, because of things that you're doing to alienate yourself from others. So Peter adds this section to his letter because to him it's essential. To him it's essential that you and I differentiate, listen, between the suffering that we encounter because of sin and the suffering we encounter because of Christ. So he begins by comparing the suffering of Christ with the ungodly suffering that one might endure for, let's say, first, murder. Murder. Murder, why, you may ask, were there a lot of ex-murderers among the Christians to whom Peter is writing? It seems like a rather odd thing to begin with. Possibly, it could be. But more likely than not, Peter's speaking in extremes just to kind of cover the entire gamut of what might come. So when he comes to murder, however, Peter was there when Jesus spoke of anger as being murder. You remember that in the Sermon on the Mount? Jesus said, you have heard that the ancients were told that you should not commit murder, 
Jesus says, but I tell you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court, Matthew 5.21. So maybe in, in Peter's spiritual mindset, he's thinking of spiritual murder as the equivalent to anger, but there was more than even just that. Remember with me, through the eyes of Peter, Peter was the one who drew the sword in the garden. Peter was the one who cut the ear. Peter was the one who knew anger. Peter knew rage. Peter knew law-breaking. He had suffered as a liar, as a blasphemer, as a cursor of Christ. He understood the pain he felt not to be the suffering that God approves of. He felt the other kind of suffering. And if you suffer as a thief, he says, because you steal and the authorities imprison you, or if you do evil and are a troublesome meddler, which is a word that many people believe that Peter invented himself to kind of be like the one who oversees the affairs of others, basically a busybody. If you suffer for those consequences of that kind, then please do not claim that that kind of suffering is what glorifies God. That doesn't glorify God. You're just suffering for the sin that you commit, that you need to repent of. There's all kinds of suffering that Christians can endure. It's isn't this kind of suffering he's talking about? Peter does not deal with, listen, with the suffering of illness. He doesn't talk about the suffering of death. He doesn't suffer, talk about the suffering of like personal little idiosyncrasies that come from just being socially awkward. To Peter, suffering, Christian suffering, cannot be reduced to the suffering that comes from just poverty or lack of education or lack of social skills or just lack of any other ability. Many people suffer because of hunger and segregation and favoritism and plans like that and pains like that and always have. But none of these speak to the pains of Christian suffering. So it's necessary you evaluate your suffering. What kind of suffering are you going through? What is this suffering? Am I suffering for God or am I suffering just because of sin? You see, the act of human suffering as a, as a human being in a sinful world doesn't just kind of automatically qualify you for blessing or honor because you may not have suffered for the will of God. Peter says, no, evaluate your suffering. Evaluate why are you suffering. If one endures as a Christian, if one is identified as, with Christ and the world sees you as Christ-like and you suffer, then you're blessed. Then you're blessed. We, we suffer because we speak like Christ. We're blessed. We, we, we behave like Christ. We're blessed. We, we pray like Christ. We live like Christ. We love like Christ. We engage like Christ. We evangelize like Christ. We restrain ourselves like Christ. We honor the Father and, and like Christ. With, that's Christian suffering. When you turn the other cheek, that's Christian suffering. I think it's impossible for Peter not to remember how he had suffered before the trial of Christ in Luke 22 Verse 54 and 62, I'm going to read this to you. Remember this time in Peter's life. Now, having arrested him, Luke 22, verse 54, and they led him away and brought him to the house of the high priest, but Peter was following at a distance. And after they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter was sitting among them. And a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the firelight and looking at him intently at him, said, this man was with him too. But he denied it, saying, woman, I, I do not know him. But he denied it and saying that. A little later, the, another saw him and said, you are the one of them too. But Peter says, man, I am not. And after about an hour had passed, another man began to insist, saying, certainly this man was with him too, for he also is a Galilean. 
But Peter says, man, I do not know what you're talking about. And immediately while he was still speaking, a rooster crowed. And the Lord looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the word of the Lord and how he had told him, before a rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and cried bitterly. I can't even imagine the beginning or the end of that kind of unbearable guilt that he must have felt for being in the presence of the Lord, the Lord speaking at him, looking at him, and remembering in that moment the unbearable consequence, no hope, no joy, no, no consolation whatsoever. He had sinned so profoundly and deeply for all the wrong reasons for too long, and now he learned what it's like to suffer for the right reasons, and it consumed him, so he goes to the people, and he says, verse 16, back to 1 Peter chapter 4, if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but he is to glorify God in this name, the name of Christ. It was late in the summer of 1977, and in Romania, there was a communist rule when the Baptist minister, Joseph Chesson, put all of his worldly concerns in order because he knew he was going to die, and strengthened by the courage of his wife, Elizabeth, he prepared himself for certain martyrdom. He was to meet an officer from the secret police in the restaurant of a nondescript Romanian hotel, and when the communist officer had pledged to do what previous secret police officials had failed to do, to silence his ministry by offering him a secular job in exchange for the promise that he would never, ever preach the gospel again, turning down the job, Spelled at least hard time in prison. It might mean execution. Son met with the man and without flinching turned down the job. I told the interrogator, you should know your supreme weapon is killing. My supreme weapon is dying. Now here's how it works, sir. You know that my sermons are on tape all over the country. When you shoot me or crush me, whichever way you choose, you sprinkle my sermons with my blood, and everybody who has a tape of one of my sermons will pick it up and say, I had better listen again. This man died for what he preached. Sir, my sermons will speak ten times louder after you kill me and because you kill me. In fact, I will conquer this country for God because you kill me. Go on and do it. Dying for the Lord is not an accident. It's not a tragedy, he said. It's part of the job. It's part of the ministry, and it's the greatest way of preaching, to die. Peter would agree, especially in this final lesson here from Peter, not only must we expect the suffering, exult in the suffering, evaluate the suffering, but lastly, entrust your suffering. Entrust your suffering. And we see this in verse 17 and 19 of chapter 4. For it is time for judgment to begin with the house of God, and if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it's with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God must entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing good. It's a very interesting way to end this section. Peter reasons need to be heard out loud here. The time for the judgment to begin is with the household of God. I don't know if you've thought about that before. As you begin to suffer for the name of Christ, it is vital that you understand this purification process is necessary. I say that because the time has come for the entire church of God to be purified. I believe these are times that we are in as well. 
The judgment of the household of God here is a judgment of determining exactly who is in and who is out. Who is who? Do you belong? There's going to be a testing. There's going to be a, a crucible, if you will, that is coming, and God's going to start with the church. And we've already seen evidence of that, haven't we? Even our Lord Jesus suffered to learn obedience to the Father, though he had no sin. He was still required to allow his humanness to undergo testing, just as we are. Remember in verse 7 of last week, the end is near. The end is near. The time has come. Testing is at hand. The purification of the church draws near. Verse 17b of chapter 4, and if it, meaning judgment, the purification, begins with us, the household of God, first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God, meaning unbelievers? So if obeying the gospel requires suffering for God's people in the church, protected as they are through faith of salvation, then what in the world kind of suffering do you think lies ahead for the unbeliever? He repeats the same thought in different words in verse 18, quoting Proverbs 11.31. If it is with difficulty that the righteous are saved, meaning if the process of salvation through faith demands a life of difficulty in suffering for Christ for those who are going to heaven, what then will become of the godless man and the sinner? Answer, their fate is so fatal that the comparison is not even imaginable. So what Peter's doing again here is teaching us the painful but necessary truth that must ever be before each one of us, no matter what state you are, if you're a new believer, if you've been walking with the Lord for many, many years. Suffering for Christ is hard and painful and might produce great, great agony, but if that is God's will even for his children, for purposes that he didn't even allow his own son to sidestep, but when he walked on earth, we shall be the same, then we shouldn't we shouldn't we as the household of God draw encouragement from the fact that there's even a small comparison between our sufferings and the sufferings that the unbelieving world will undergo without Christ. No one reasons like that anymore. No one even talks like that anymore. People don't, people don't compare life like that anymore. No one ever says, yes, being a Christian might require you to suffer for Christ, but compared to the suffering that goes on in eternal hell for the lost, the price isn't that high, is it? We're not suffering to gain heaven, make that clear. We're suffering to prove we're going there. Like father, like son, like master, like slave. Because this is true, Peter tells us, we must entrust our sufferings to God. Verse 19, therefore, those who suffer according to the will of God must entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing good. And this word entrust, by the way, is a banking term. It's a banking term. It means to deposit for safekeeping. Just go through suffering, taking your soul and depositing your soul with God. It's the same word used of Jesus when he was on the cross and he entrusted his spirit to God the Father. Same word in the midst of his suffering. He gave himself to God. He entrusted himself. We saw that earlier in 1 Peter 2. So Peter says, give your life to God for him to sustain the midst of the greatest suffering. He is trustworthy. He is faithful. And the verse ends in doing what is right. And that, too, is ultimately what Peter did as well. I don't know if you know tradition, but the early church fathers unanimously claimed that Peter died in Rome by crucifixion, according to the persecution of Nero in AD 64. As for crucifixion upside down, it's also testified that 
The evidence is weak for that particular form of crucifixion, but that is the testimony of the tradition. The apocryphal Acts of Peter is the earliest reference to the crucifixion of Peter upside down. Again, we can't be sure. The earliest reference to the martyrdom of Peter comes in the letter of Clement from Rome about A.D. 90. He said in his letter to the Corinthians, Let us take the noble examples of our own generation. Through jealousy and envy, the greatest and most just pillars of the church were persecuted and even came to death. Peter, though just unjust envy, through Peter, unjust envy endured not one or two, but many labors, and at last, having delivered his testimony, departed into the place of glory due him, meaning an execution. Another letter to the Romans about A.D. 110 claimed that Peter was bishop of Rome and that agrees that Peter served in Rome. Tertullian about A.D. 195 declared, but if you are near Italy, you have Rome where authority is at hand for us too. What a happy church that is on which the apostles poured out their own doctrine with their blood where Peter had a passion like that of the Lord, where Paul was crowned with the death of John the Baptist by being beheaded. So Peter tells us, expect it, exult in it, evaluate it, and entrust your souls to God during it. For strange suffering is coming. Let none of us be surprised. Let's pray. Father, as we sit here in the world, as it's changing so rapidly, and we see the revolving door of humanity going in and out with any kind of thought of you, we come here today knowing that your word is true, that salvation is real, that Christ is the only forgiver of sin, and therefore, if we are to be like him, that your scripture is so clear, we shall live godly and suffer for it. Father, prepare us to be living in a godly way, and if suffering comes, if the devils of this world try to attack, if Satan's minions are at our doorstep, if the people in our workplace or even in our family are so devoted to our undoing, let us rejoice if it's for our faith. Let us rejoice for this faith has been given to us. It is not transferred by human reasoning, but it has come from above, and we should be thankful and glorify you for it. Help us to be brave, I ask in Christ's name. Amen.